1 Corinthians 13, we started a sermon last week on the nature of God's love. And um, we are looking at 1 Corinthians 13. We jumped onto this topic because of Valentine's Day and uh, the focus on love. And so uh, as we look at the Bible, the Bible tells us that God is love. And uh, the idea that God is love to you and me should comfort us. It should convict us. It should drive us to become more like God in his loving ways. It should cause us to be very sensitive to his Holy Spirit as he directs us in his love. But there's just a lot of wrong teaching out there today about the love of God, isn't there? We're going to touch on that a little bit this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, like I told you last week, this is a chapter that I will go through uh, in premarital counseling when the Lord gives me the opportunity to perform a wedding for a young couple. Now, since I've been here at Brentwood Baptist Church, I have performed a lot more funerals than I have weddings. That doesn't necessarily speak well, does it? But one of the things that we do is go through this chapter and look at God's description of his love. And then our goal is to pattern our love after God's description. And last week we did this. We said by way of introduction, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians deals with the unity and diversity of the gifts within the body. And we're trying to put this chapter into context. And I'm not going to preach last Sunday's sermon again, but in order to understand how chapter 13 fits in, you need to understand the context of the chapters around it as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And he basically says this, you are a body. And he's talking to a local church body. You are a body and you fit together. And he says phrases throughout this book uh, such as when you come together, when and as you come together and things like that. So the idea is that the gathering of the church body. And of course, the word church is the word ecclesia, which means assembly. And so the idea is that God gives local churches a body of believers that commit to one another. And then within that body of believers, we use the spiritual gifts. Those of you who are not committed to a local church, God gives spiritual gifts to his children. But if you're not part of that body, you're not in the place that God wants you to be to, in order to use those gifts. And uh, so you need to be in a committed relationship with a church body so that the Lord can use you. And uh, so that's chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the chapter we're in this morning. It deals with the power of love, which should govern our gifts. And I want us to understand how important this is. And to be honest with you, what I thought about doing was bringing a gun barrel this morning. Believe me, I would have only brought the barrel. Okay, no ammunition, not the rest of the gun, just the gun barrel. And and uh, I think the Lord just blocked out of my, my memory because uh, maybe he didn't want me to bring it because we live in Illinois. I guess maybe that's it. But anyway, I was going to bring a shotgun barrel and show you all. Uh, you've heard me say this before. There are times when we are as straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow and empty on the inside. Right. And the idea is this. Sometimes when we are doctrinally sound. And we believe that we are. If we weren't, we would change our doctrine because we want our doctrine to line up with God's word. But when we believe that we're doctrinally sound, sometimes we can be harsh and unloving, right? Are you all with me? Okay. 
And so just as you take a gun barrel, and believe me, um, if you have a 12-gauge shotgun and you pull the trigger, there is a blast. And if you're not braced, it'll knock you over. And I'm telling you, it's invigorating for a man to do that. Some of you all looking at me like you know what you're talking, what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, why are you even going into all this? Well, it's exciting from the standpoint of the person pulling the trigger. Man, it's like, wow, that was fun, you know. But on the other end of that, it can be quite devastating, right? If you're on the receiving end of that, it can be very damaging. And sometimes in our words or our behavior, we think that it's good for us just to express ourselves and to get that release that we're looking for. Looked at these two words, and in 1 Corinthians 13, we have this word agape. And in verses 1, 2, and 3, we looked at these three points. Verse number 1 tells us that words alone do not prove love. Verse number 1 says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am, becoming a sounding bra- I am become a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Sounding brass, the, the brass gongs, the tinkling cymbal, these were things that were used in pagan worship. And so he's basically saying it's, it's no more than sound in the air, but there's even more than that. It's, you're no better than the pagans. If you can be this great orator or you can talk or you can convince people through your language, but there's no love behind it. Verse number two tells us that knowledge and faith alone do not prove love. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And the word charity is the word agape that has been translated in our English Bibles that way. And by the way, I love the word charity. Um, if you have a newer translation and it uses the word love, it's not quite the same. You see, charity is uh, a love that drives us to action. We, we kind of associate it today with, uh, you know, giving money to people who are less off than we are. And that if we do that, we're given to a charity dot dot dot. OK, well, the idea of charity is that you love an individual or a group of people or you love something to the point where that you're willing to sacrifice, you're willing to give. And so God loved us and he gave His son. Right. And praise God that he did. And so that's the idea here. And the word charity, the word that's translated love and other verses all come from this word agape. And then we uh, we get to verse number three and we saw that actions alone do not prove love. It says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You may stand up for what is right until you are martyred for it. But if there's no love in your heart, God says it profits nothing. You see, God is pretty serious about this idea of loving and being willing to uh, share his love with others and let them see his love through you. And then we get into verse number four. And I'm just going to put this screen up here, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And for the next few verses, what we're going to do is we're just going to list these different aspects of or descriptions of the word love. And let me say that between verses four and In the beginning of verse 8, there are 16 different descriptions of this agape love in these verses. Now, we're not going to, well, we're going to try to get through all of them this morning. I thought about kind of dividing it in half, but I believe what God, and preach two sermons. But I think what God would have me do this morning is just to give us an overview of these words. Now, there are some phrases that I'm going to pause on a little bit longer than others. But I want us to pray that God will teach us 
about his love and make application within our hearts in these different areas where we need to see it. And as I have studied this topic and looked at these words, and not just in this chapter, but throughout Scripture, I want to tell you this, that oftentimes what we are really dealing with here is love versus selfishness. We're often dealing with focusing on another or focusing on self. And as we go through these 16 different descriptions, and we're going to combine two of them in, into one, but all the others we're going to look at individually. So 16 different snapshots of God's love, and which is the love that you and I are to model ourselves after. And as we look at them, what you're going to see is the opposite of what God's love is here is the idea of being self-centered. And so think about that as we work our way through here. And look at these different phrases. And with that thought in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump in at verse number four. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us guessing on any topic. Lord, you give us your word, you give us your heart, your thoughts. And Father, we want to pattern our thinking after your thinking. And dear Lord, all across this auditorium, from one side to the other, are people in here with varying needs. Lord, they've all come here because they want to hear your word. They want to hear truth. So I pray, Lord, that you would present that this morning through me. Help me, Lord, to be your mouthpiece, no more, no less. Help me to say what you want and only what you want, but help me to be sensitive to your leadership so that, Lord, I present this topic exactly the way you want it to be this morning. Lord, there's no way we can get all through the depth of the love of God in this one sermon. But, Father, we ask that you would take the things that we look at, teach them to us, open our hearts and minds so that we can then make application and that your Holy Spirit can make application through the sword of the Spirit that we're using this morning to teach us individually. Lord, there may be people in here who need healing. There may be people in here who need to be softened. There may be people in here that need to be comforted. There may be people in here, Lord, who need to be rebuked. Lord, there may be some people in here that just need you to hit them between the eyes with a two-by-four, spiritually speaking. Lord, whatever the case may be, all across this room, I pray that you would provide it. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will do what only he can do, and that is to convict and convince within our hearts. And bring us in line with the teaching of your word. And these things we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Verse number four, the Bible says this. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, Charity never faileth. That's quite an amazing list, isn't it? Let's go back and go through it. Charity suffereth long. And I'm just going to put these points up here just so we can kind of keep track of where we're at as we go along. 
the idea of suffereth long. Notice the word suffereth is in there. We don't often think of love as a reason to suffer. We tend to think of love as something that's warm and fuzzy. But I'm going to tell you this morning that true love is willing to suffer for the other person, even if it is for an extended period of time. Now, you make the application this morning. We're talking about a love for our Savior. We're talking about a love within our families. We're talking about a love within the church. You can make the application. But love suffereth long. True love can put up with a lot from another person. The idea behind this word is uh, long patience. That's the idea here. When you love a person, it takes a lot to make you angry at that person. And Jesus set the example for us. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. We are to pattern our love after Christ's love. And then that verse goes on and says this, And hath given himself for an offering and for a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Jesus knew we had a sin debt that we couldn't pay. The Father's holiness was offended and only the blood of a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the demands of a holy God. Jesus gave himself to pay our debt and to ransom our soul. When he suffered for us, what he suffered for us is beyond our understanding. But it set an example for us to follow in our love for others and for him. It suffereth long. Proverbs 10 and verse number 12 says this, and this verse helps us to understand the nature of love. It says this, hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sin. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Now we're going to talk about that concept as we go further in this. But let us understand from the very beginning that as Paul sets the stage for the rest of the descriptions of love, he says love is willing to suffer a long time if need be. Not our picture of love, is it? We often think of love as if I don't get anything out of it, I'm, I'm out of this relationship. That's not the way God sees love. Look at the next one. It says love is kind. Charity suffereth long and is kind. What's the idea behind that? Love is not abusive. There are no angry responses when true love is exhibited. No using words to tear down the other. The idea is to be mild. They may get a little uncomfortable in here this morning, but this is what we need to hear. Often the ones that we say we love the most are the ones we are the harshest with. It is no secret. Anger is a problem with a lot of people, right? And it can destroy a relationship because anger is not an exhibit of love. Words have a powerful impact. James chapter 3 and verse number 6 says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. We often through our tongue set sin into motion. He goes on to say, So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Our tongue, our words can set on fire the course of nature. There are, are no doubt people in this room this morning who have been hurt by words coming from someone who was supposed to love them. And because of that hurt, they still feel it today. 
words set on fire the course of nature. Even in, within our homes, when we discipline our children, now parents pay attention, when we discipline our children, we never are to do it in anger. That is the wrong time to discipline. If this is a problem, if that is something that you deal with, you need to cool down and handle the situation thoughtfully afterward because discipline is always, always, always for the benefit of the one that is being disciplined. Discipline coming from an angry parent to a child is not for the purpose of you working out your anger. That is contrary to Scripture. Discipline always has the benefit of the other person involved. And God always, when He disciplines His own, He does it for our benefit. And afterward comes the fruits of righteousness, the Bible tells us. So kindness is part of the nature of God's love. Love does not have abusive, strong, angry responses. And then look at the next one. Charity envieth not. What does that mean? In the middle of verse 4, charity envieth not. Charity isn't envious of the person they love. Now this is a bigger problem than what we want or may suspect. But when the relationship becomes a competition always trying to get one up on the other person, then we've reached the point of envy, not love. It can make the other person an enemy, make the other person a target, not an object of our love. I once counseled a couple a while back. It's been a few years. I counseled a couple where the wife wanted a job making $100,000 a year. And there were problems within the marriage and the reason that she gave for wanting that job is because that's what her husband made and she wanted to make at least what he made or more. And that created tension within the home. So there was an aspect of love that she was missing. Her thoughts were self-centered. She had reached the point where it was envy, not love. You see, love is glad to see the other person receive special blessings and recognition without thinking that it should have been you. Now, this is the same Greek word that's translated in chapter 12, 31. So look just back at the previous chapter. Look at verse 31. But covet earnestly the, the, the best gifts, and yet sh uh, show I unto you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is that our gifts should be governed by love. But look at that first phrase. But covet earnestly the best gift. He's saying if you want to, if you want to desire spiritual gifts, at least desire the ones that are the most benefit for other people. That's the idea. But do you see the words covet earnestly? Those words covet earnestly is that one Greek word that is here translated as envieth. Only here it has the word not behind it. And so it gives you the idea of what this word means. This word means that we are to desire well, in chapter 12, verse 31, we are to desire gifts that benefit other people. But here we're not to have a desire within a relationship where we say we love a person. We're not to have a desire to be better than them or greater than them or to envy them because God is blessing them or something has happened good to them. So love envieth not. But then there's this next phrase, vaunteth not itself. Now, what does that mean? Let me put it up on the screen. Charity vaunteth not itself. In verse number four, 
The word literally means self-display. Love never brags about how it loves the other person. It just does. In this case, the other person becomes, in the case of vaunting yourself, the other person becomes a means by which you draw attention to yourself. The other person then that you say you love becomes a means for you to get attention. The other person that they say they love is actually a way of getting self-display, which is what this word means. This person most likely loves themselves more than they love the other person. And when we say that we love someone, we willingly do things for them without recognition. Jesus died for us and suffered things that we will never understand. He did for us things that we won't truly ever, I believe, understand. Maybe when we get into eternity, God will reveal some things to us. But he was willing to suffer long without vaunting himself or displaying himself. So much of these qualities of love are the very opposite of selfishness. Notice that as we go through. Look at uh, verse 4 again. Vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. The idea here is pride, being swelled up. Love is about the other person. Love is not about yourself. There is a natural humility in God's love for us and our love for others. Love doesn't say, I've done this for you and now you owe me. I'm sure we've all seen that expressed before. This is this type of action that says, I've done this for you, now you owe me. It's a type of action that makes us indebted to the person and it is not true love for them. It is love for self. It's an inflation of ourself, and that's the words here, is not puffed up. Love is always displayed with humility. It is not using the other person to make us look good. And that is part of true agape love. Look at verse number five. In verse number five, the first phrase is, doth not behave itself unseemly. Love never intentionally puts the other person in a position to embarrass them. Love never asks the other person to do things that are not appropriate. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. Love tries to make the other person comfortable around us, not awkward, even if it means adjusting our behavior. That's the idea here behind this. We're all human and we all fail at this. But when it is intentionally done, it is not a display of love. It's a display of selfishness. Now, it's been pretty quiet in here so far. So the only thing I can assume is that as we look at these phrases, either you're catching a good nap right now, or this can become a little overwhelming, can't it? There are some things that we need to understand here. 1 Corinthians 13 is, I believe, a beautiful example of the nature of God's love. And that's the way we started this sermon. It's a nature of God's love. It is the love that we are to pattern our love after. But isn't it a beautiful thing that God grows us little by little? And there may be areas in here, in this description of love, where you feel like, okay, I, I can see this is good. This is good. And then you get one and it's like, oh, man, have I failed in that area? 
But let us understand that God takes us through these things and grow us as we surrender. And when we develop a true love for our God, then he can begin to work his love out through us, right? I mean, if you're here this morning and you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, right? And if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, he wants this for you more than you want it for yourself. And so as you surrender and as you yield, and let me say this morning that true love, this idea of agape love, is about choices. It's not about emotion. And as we make those choices, God leads us and he grows us and he directs us. And he brings this love out through us. There are certain things that I just assume a new Christian would want to do. I would assume that as a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to want to please God. And their, their love for God will bring them to the point where that they say, Okay, God, what's next? You've saved my soul from hell. You've loved me when I haven't deserved it. What's next? And God would say, Okay, there's baptism, and then there's commitment to the church, and then there's using your gifts, and then there's you know, supporting my work. And, and God leads us, and, and he'll say, uh, or he'll direct us into things like, Okay, now here's an area that doesn't represent me. You need to remove that from your life. Over here is an area where you need to include these things so that you do represent me better. And through this process of, uh, of like the potter squeezing the clay on the, on the wheels, he slowly conforms us into his image and brings us into this beautiful vessel that represents him to the world around us. That's what God wants to do for us, right? And part of that is us reflecting his love. Now look at the next phrase here. Seeketh not her own. That phrase is pretty easy to understand. Go back to chapter 10. I want you to see a verse back here that helps us understand the concept here. Chapter 10, look at verse number 24. Chapter 10, verse 24. The Apostle Paul writes this. No man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Boy, that kind of goes contrary to our thinking, doesn't it? Here, it's placed within a, a, a context of material blessings and uh, what should be our desire to see others provided for. But when you take that concept and you bring it into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, we look at this phrase, seeketh not her own, then the idea then is that you always have the other person's best interest in mind. That's the idea of love. Young people, let me say something to you this morning because you're young, your life's ahead of you, and um, you are more prone to um, peer pressure. And I want to tell you this morning that if a friend tries to talk you into sharing in their sin, they don't love you. Because love seeketh not her own. And nine times out of ten, no, let me say that differently, ten times out of ten, if a person is trying to convince you to be involved in their sin, it's for selfish reasons because it makes them feel better uh, that, that they're in sin and now you're in there with them. It could be alcohol. It could be some other drug. It could be watching something that's ungodly. It could be a, a desire to, to uh, cause you to be morally loose and to, to give in to their desires to be morally loose. It could be music that dishonors God. And all of those things could be part of it. And the idea is they're seeking their own benefit, not yours. If you love me, you will fill in the blank. The idea is trying to use you to get what they want 
It's not a love for you. And that type of action is selfish. So love seeketh not her own. If Jesus had sought his own, he wouldn't have died on the cross for us, would he? And then look at the next phrase. Is not easily provoked. Now this word, yeah, we're back in chapter 13, verse number 5. This word provoked is translated in other places in our Bible, stir. Kind of like the idea of stirring the pot, getting things stirred up. And let me say this, some people get easily irritated by just being in the presence of another person, right? Now don't, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about here. Okay, we're all the chip off the same block, right? We may be from 10 different nations in here this morning, but we're all the chip off the same block. There's certain people that walk in the room, and when they walk in the room, your irritation meter just climbs, right? Okay, somebody is admitting they, they know what I'm talking about. True love keeps you from getting stirred up easily. You're not easily irritated around the person that you love. That's the idea behind this phrase. And then we have this phrase here, thinketh no evil. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. I want us to get a hold of this this morning because this one kind of jumped out to me when I studied it. This is an accounting term. It's an accounting concept. For those of you who uh, make your career or your life uh, crunching numbers and doing accounting, um, this one will help you understand. The word thinketh no evil, thinketh. That word means to reckon or to make an account of. So the idea is to keep an account of the offenses that the other person has done. And so that as you are in this relationship, you're making note of all of their failures. Or every time that they have offended you. And so this list can become quite long. But let me ask you a question. If God took offense to every time that you offended his holiness, how long would that list be? You know, doesn't, didn't we just look at a verse at the beginning that told us that we are to love as Jesus loved? Micah 7 and verse 19 describes God this way. He says, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That is beautiful imagery of God's loving forgiveness. In a relationship where love is to exist, there has to be forgiveness, right? There has to be. One preacher put it this way, God casts our sins into the depths of the sea, and then he put up a sign that said, no fishing. And so there it is. When God forgives, God forgives. So thinketh no evil means once it's forgiven, it's forgiven. Don't you see the magnitude of the benefit of God's love? Oh, how God loves us. Uh, I want to do an illustration this morning to help us understand this concept. Josiah, I need you to come up here. You knew it was coming, didn't you? You know, Josiah is my sermon illustration. When he goes to college, I'm going to have to have another sermon illustration. Ronick, you're the next in line. Okay, no, I don't need you today. I only need you when he goes to college. Okay, right now we're, we're good. Let's say that somebody does something to offend Josiah. All right, let's say that this hymn book represents your offense against Josiah. And it may be sincere. I mean, it may be on it. Maybe you really did hurt him in one way or another. And he has that, that hymn book. Okay, well, let's say that he does not forgive 
because you really did offend him. And so now he's got this and he's holding this against you. Let's say you do it again. Okay, now he's got two offenses and he's, he's keeping account. That's the idea behind this phrase. Okay, so he's keeping an account. And let's say that you do it again. Okay, there's another one. I need some more hymn books. Some of you are quite willing to give up your hymn book for this illustration, aren't you? You're willing, you're willing to be offensive here for Josiah's sake. Okay, and you do it again. And let's say there's another person that does it again. Now Josiah's got five different offenses that he's holding against different people. And God says, Josiah, I need to use you. You want to go over there and play the piano? Sure. <laughs> this is going to be a little difficult, isn't it? Maybe, maybe if we gave you a backpack, we could put those in the backpack, and then you could play the piano because your hands would be free. It would be a little awkward, though, wouldn't it, playing with a backpack full of hymn books? And let's say that uh, he goes over there and he plays the piano, and while he's over there playing it, somebody else offends him again. Is God going to be able to use his talents when he's keeping score of all these offenses? Oh, he may be able to go through it. But it's not the same as thinketh no evil, right? If he's willing to forgive, why don't you set those right there on the altar? Let's say he comes to God. He says, God, I've been offended, but I'm giving this over to you. I forgive them. And then they can look that person in the eye and truly know that God has taken care of it in his heart, regardless of what happens in their heart. And he's free to use his talents for the Lord, right? Okay. It'd be a lot easier to play the piano now, wouldn't it? Okay, why don't you go sit down? Thank you. That's the idea behind this phrase. Thinketh no evil. You either pass them on to God or you hold on to them. Which one's better, church? Passing it on to God, right? In a nutshell, as I look at these phrases in these, uh, in, in these verses, because we get into verse number six, and it kind of changes uh, nature just a little bit here. So let me pause for just a moment and say this. As I look back over these things in verses four and five, I see that love is patient, kind, and not self-centered. Do you see that? Love seeks the best interest of the one that is loved, even if it includes sacrifice. You see, God's love or love desires, let me say it this way, true love desires God's will for the other person above all else. If you have offended me or you've offended Josiah and our, uh, we're, we're, we're keeping an account of your offenses, then I am looking at you as if I have the right to vengeance. And when that is in my heart, love cannot coexist with that. Do we understand? So love always desires God's will for the other person. Now, don't get discouraged if you have struggled with this because love involves willful choices. We need to understand that. It involves willful choices. And the Holy Spirit is in you and he will help you with those. Now, let's go to the next verse. Look at verse number six. We're going to look at uh, verses six and seven together here. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And there's two thoughts there. We're going to look at them together. So here it is. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. Iniquity, that's sin. But rejoiceth in the truth. You know, oftentimes, the way love is explained to us today we think that love and truth are opposite of each other. 
and that love and truth can't go together. But that is just not biblically right. Love and truth are not at odds. They go together because love rejoices not in iniquity. Love never wants to see the other person involved in sin. Love never wants to see that. Love is never happy when the one that they love is not living in accordance with truth. You see, uh, truth helps purge iniquity. And so love never rejoices in that sin. They don't want to see others living in sin. They want to see them living for the Lord. And, And love rejoices in the truth because when we come to the truth, iniquity is purged. Because you can't live in the truth and sin against God because God is truth, right? So as we comply to his word, it begins to uh, purge the iniquity out of our life. And then love can rejoice in that. Love is never happy when the one who is loved is not living in accordance to truth. There is a misunderstanding of love that's promoted today. And it goes something like this. Love accepts people without confronting sin. And that word accepts is a word that kind of a buzzword that was used a while back. And the idea is, you know what, I accept you as you are, regardless of what sin may be involved in your life. But that's not true love. To confront a person's sin is to make them uncomfortable. And so the way it's taught today is you can't do that because that makes them uncomfortable and that doesn't show love. But that is that that can't be further from the truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. Love never rejoices in the sin of another person. If we go to the book of Ephesians, we're not going to go there because I'm going to read the verses to you. Just for the sake of time this morning, I've not asked you to go to very many other passages. And this this one I want to read to us. Ephesians 5 talks about a husband's love for his wife. And the the word that is used in here, when when you hear the word love, it is that word agape. And notice what it says here. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Okay, so we have the pattern of God's love here. And then it says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. Do you hear that? With the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy. Do you hear that word? And without blemish. God's love for the church Let me say Jesus's love for the church. Listen to me, please. Jesus's love for the church put him in a position to cleanse it and to make it holy. It doesn't put him in a position to stroke our sin. Right. And so it is with God's love in our lives. And so it should be in our love with others. Again, young people. I want to address you for a moment. If you're involved in a relationship and the other person says they love you, but they push you to do things that are wrong, they do not love you because love never rejoices in iniquity. They love themselves and they're using you to get what they want. 
Proverbs 23 says it this way. It talks about the evil man. It says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. He wants you to participate in his sin. The eating and the drinking is figurative of the sin that he's involved in. And he wants you to be involved in that. But he really, his heart's not with you. He doesn't care about you. He just wants others to be involved in his sin. We see that all around us today in the world, right? Then we get to verse number seven. Verse number seven says this, beareth all things. Now, throughout verse seven, he he uses a few phrases. Look at verse seven with me. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. In order for us to understand the intent of these phrases, we're going to insert the word through to help us understand, okay? Because it's there, it's in, it's, it's in there, but this helps our modern minds to understand it a little better. So look at the verse that says, Beareth through all things, believeth through all things, hopeth through all things, endureth through all things. So let's talk about the first one, beareth all things. That word beareth means to deck it over like a roof or or a thatch. And so here's the idea. You put the roof on, you put the thatching on, you deck it. And it means that love conceals what it knows about the other that's undesirable. You can no longer see inside to those things that are exposed. So love decks over, it conceals. In Proverbs 11, it says this, a, t- a tale bearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. There are certain things that just don't need to be shared, right? And when you're always talking about the other person's faults, you're not showing love. When you love someone, you will hear a lot you will bear a lot when I, I'm sorry, I mispronounced that word. When you love someone, you will bear a lot without a complaint about it. And then he uses the next phrase, believeth all things. Let me say this, believeth through all things. The idea is to commit or to have confidence. In other words, you believe you don't give up. You want to inspire them. You want to encourage them. Love truly encourages them. It believeth, believes through all things. It involves support in the endeavors that they have that are godly. Not foolish or vain uh, endeavors, but godly endeavors are supported and you believe through those things. Hopeth all things. That is, it hopes through all things. And think about the things here as difficulties. Hope gives us, and we need to understand the idea of this word hope. We have a misunderstanding of it too. You know, we kind of think of hope as wishing upon a star. You know, that's kind of the idea. I hope this happens. Okay, but that's not the scriptural understanding of the word hope. Hope is what gives us a focal point through all of our trials. Through all the ups and downs, hope is like an anchor. I want you to listen to the word hope as it's used in these verses. 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. What does he mean by the end? Well, he tells us, For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ gives us hope. It is at the end. So as I go through trials on this earth, I have my hope anchored that Jesus is right when he says, I will come again. And that, is, that gives me hope. 
In Hebrews 6.19, the verse says this, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Regardless of the ups and downs of this life and the trials and the storms, I have an anchor and that anchor is my hope in Jesus Christ. That's the concept here. Hebrews 3.6 says this, but Christ has a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That hope gives me firmness all the way to the end that Jesus Christ is going to do what he says that he does. And so love, well, let me say it this way. Our love for another person gives us hope through all things. It stabilizes us. When we go through difficult times with a loved one, the love we have one for another gives us an anchor, and that anchor is called hope. I hope that makes sense. I hope that hope, I hope you understand. All right, moving along. If we have love for the Lord, it gives us hope and stability through all things. And thus we have this verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Why is that? Because that love gives us hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Beautiful verses. We never use our love for another person as a bargaining tool, giving the impression that we only love them when they do what we want. That's not love. When we make our love conditional, depending on how they treat us, then we're self-centered, we're manipulatory. It's not truly loving. So love hopeth through all things. Love endureth all things or endureth through all things. That means to tarry patiently through all difficult times. Love says, I'm here to stay. Love does not say, I'm not getting anything out of this, so I'm done. That's not love. And then we get to verse 8 and it says this. You know what? I got excited and got ahead of myself. Charity never faileth. That's the true nature of God's love. True love is lasting and it gives hope. Aren't you glad for God's unchanging, undeserved love? Now this needs to be the pattern of our love for God. It needs to be the pattern of our love for our families and our love for each other. There's some things in here that are kind of hard for us as human beings to do, isn't it? But by God's grace and with the help of his Holy Spirit, this is the target when we talk about love. Romans 8 verse 39 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, I don't know about you, but I, I really appreciate that verse. Nothing can separate us from the love of our God. What a blessing. 